Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, Arc's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This week, we'll talk to Morgan Dunbar, partner at Bendigo Partners, a firm that specializes in the global financial technology industry as both a principal investor and operational advisor. In addition to that, Morgan is managing partner at Air Summit, a network and conference targeted at the capital market industry and capital market startups specifically. Lastly, Morgan is also theme developer at Arc around our fintech strategy. Morgan, it's great that you're here on the Arc podcast. Just to kick things off, describe your background a little bit. Your role at your company, Bendigo Partners. You've been doing uh, a fintech uh, conference, the Air Summit. Just maybe give the, the listener a little bit background around that. Sure, sure. And thanks for having me. Yeah, I've spent most of my career and uh, all of my career in institutional capital markets in some capacity. I spent uh, roughly 15 years or so on the sell side, focused on technology data and analytics related to portfolio construction and implementation. Most recently, I was at Citigroup in Tokyo back in 2009, I guess, running uh, electronic execution sales for Japanese equities at Nikko City. And for the past 10 years, I've been a partner at a small boutique called Bendigo Partners. We really do two things. Primarily, we invest on a principal basis in early stage fintech companies um, with a heavy bias towards uh, capital markets, um, institutional, retail, wealth, front to middle to back office technologies. And then we have an advisory practice where our clients are private equity funds, institutional private equity funds, and large enterprise incumbents across the capital markets spectrum. So asset managers, wealth managers, brokerage firms, banks, exchanges, and so on. That's a mix of transaction-related advisory work, operational consulting, so helping fixing something in a portfolio or a, or a business unit, and largely just sort of fintech C-suite navel-gazing, uh, thinking through strategies around interacting with the early-stage fintech ecosystem. Uh, as part of that, uh, about a year and a half or so, I partnered with Bill Stevenson, I uh, was my partner in the Air Summit business, the, the event business you referenced. Bill spent 20 years at Franklin Templeton. He was global head of trading there. And uh, back in 2013, created an event called the Air Summit. And the Air Summit is a uh, invitation-only, highly curated community of senior buy-side and sell-side professionals that convene uh, a few times a year to discuss high-level uh, themes and innovation and emerging technologies that are impacting the asset management business, particularly on the front office. So around portfolio construction and portfolio implementation, really the, the alpha generation process, AIR stands for alpha innovation required. 
uh, and we, through that process, invite uh, 20 or so uh, emerging financial technology companies to to come and present and speak to a use case for the buy side front office. Do they have a platform or a data set or a piece of technology that can help a portfolio manager, an analyst, a trader, a risk manager, or data scientist, what have you, make a better, faster, smarter decision that is alpha generative? Yeah. So you mentioned the Air Summit, and uh, I understand that over the past years, you ran that here in New York. I think this year you had the first edition in London. I had the pleasure to be to be a part of that. Um, it was really an absolutely great event. And one term that you hear a lot at the Air Summit, and you, you just referenced it uh, as well, I think, it's the term alpha tech. And so it would be great if you could explain. And I think we could use this as kind of a start into the capital markets uh, fintech space. What do you mean by the term alpha tech? Sure. So we we coined the phrase alpha tech to really differentiate what we're focused on within capital markets from the rest of fintech writ broadly. So fintech is massive. It covers a lot of verticals or sub verticals, if you will. So it's you know consumer facing businesses, it's insurance, it's reg tech, it's the whole crypto uh, blockchain space. So it covers a lot of ground, and it's been very high profile over the last few years. Tons of money, tons of deals, lots of corporate participation, and we're focused on one particular sliver of fintech at Air, and that's capital markets. And even within capital markets, for the time being, we're really focused on just the front office. So our sweet spot are actively managed funds, fund complexes. uh, And we're really focused on bringing forward ideas, technology, data sets that can help those firms add alpha to their process. And so we thought alpha tech was an appropriate way to, to differentiate what we're looking at from the rest of fintech writ broadly. Yeah, that makes sense because we hear a lot, you know, uh, f- fintech has been around for some years now, but I think especially in the, one, in the last one or two years, uh, we hear a lot about fintech in the media. You know, all these uh, huge VC funding rounds, billion dollar uh, valuations everywhere, uh, unicorns. However, it, it tends uh, to be a lot of consumer fintech news in the media. Maybe even, and, and James, um, our other analyst here at ARC, the web analyst, James could maybe also speak on that because he also looks at the kind of the separation between B2B and, and B2C companies from a, a software as a service angle. There you also see that you hear a lot about consumer-focused software as a service, but if you look at the returns in the stock market, it looks like that you know the, the B2B SaaS players actually could be more interesting. And now you start to hear a little bit more about them again so just you know uh, coming back to fintech there like i said we hear a lot about consumer fintech in the media not so much about the the b2b um, capital markets kind of things is it because it's not so sexy (laughs) is it because the checks are not so high the valuations are not so high what do you think differentiates the two i think it's those things i think it's a combination of i think my thesis is that Traditional VCs, so sort of generalist VCs, right? And even the ones who have or have been active in fintech and have been focused on consumer-driven businesses and payments or the robo space or whatever it happens to be. I think there's a there's a fundamental lack of operational understanding within the institutional capital market space for one. Two, I think there's really long sales cycles in those businesses. And there are, you know, thousands of potential customers at the enterprise level rather as opposed to tens of millions or whatever it is at the individual consumer level, right? There's also a regulatory component 
that I think scares a lot of traditional VCs. So there's an opportunity, I think, for people who have expertise in these businesses. And a lot of that expertise sits inside of potential strategic investors to participate in this early stage of the curve. Uh, you know, as far as the unicorn stuff goes, yeah, there's probably fewer of them in capital markets. That doesn't mean the returns are less compelling. Um, if you're in the business of unicorn hunting, then yeah, it's probably less sexy area to to participate. But you know, we we feel that there's a real that it's a it's an area that's overlooked, and that it's an area that's actually quite important for the health of the institutional asset management business, which feeds into wealth management, which ultimately feeds into the consumer business, right? I mean, you talk about the large 40-act mutual fund complexes that are sort of our sweet spot at AIR, they're all manufacturing products for individuals, regardless of how that individual arrives at that product, right? They're in the business of manufacturing investment outcomes for people. Um, so we think it's important. Yeah. So it could even be that the VC that's investing in that consumer fintech unicorn or the reader that reads that article on TechCrunch or whatever, it's actually on, on the back end in his personal investing or or whatever investing platform he, he might or she might use. It's actually engaging with, with a capital market fintech that's not so not so well known, but um, you you may be involved in that. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And what's also interesting that is that when, when I attended Air Summit uh, back in London in May this year, and this speaks to your point of kind of the expertise, expert, like investors having expertise in the capital market space, being interested in that. What I found is that looking at the the pitch decks of the startups that were presenting there that on the slides where you had kind of the investors uh, listed of these startups that you read a few VC names but like you said you read a lot of strategic investor names and I think there were also a lot of you know participants from from large institutions uh, potentially strategic investors attending there so what what is the bigger picture here how do you think um, has the response been from the industry to to capital market startups Really positive. I mean, historically, the strategic investment activity in capital markets has been really led by the sell side. So it's been led by the big investment banks. And it's largely been market structure focused, which kind of makes sense, right? So if you get 10 banks to all invest on a consortium basis in some new trading venue, and they can all direct order flow to that trading venue. And as that order flow grows, the valuation of that company grows. It's sort of self-fulfilling and it makes sense. The buy side has historically been kind of absent from investing on a strategic basis in that in those spaces. Market structure related, uh, you know, aside from maybe things like IEX, probably fewer opportunities for the buy side and less interesting from a alpha generative perspective, right? From from what how can I improve my alpha generation process? So we think it's growing. We think on the sell side, the strategic principal investment uh, process has diversified away from market structure. That's a good thing. They're investing in data sets and tools and analytical platforms that not only can they use, but that can help their clients, namely the buy side. So we think that's a good thing. That's who we're trying to serve. But we think the buy side is waking up to that as well and is getting a bit more active in that space. And we think that represents a real opportunity. So if you think to your point, so that the Air Summit since inception now, 85 companies have presented. Close to 30 of them have gone on to raise a billion and a half, billion six in follow on capital. And another dozen or so have been acquired for about six billion. We haven't directly participated in those transactions. But what we think it validates is that we're putting emerging companies somewhat under the radar 
that have that provide a valid service, a valuable service to both the buy side and the sell side, and are attractive investment opportunities on a strategic basis. And so you're seeing that activity. And to your point about you know, what you saw in the pitch decks, it's a mix of buy side and sell side. Many of them are members of our community. Uh, so that's, you know, we, again, we think validates the thesis. And then I would say there's a, there's a general backdrop across fintech broadly where corporate venture is getting more involved. So I think it's, you know, CB Insights or PitchBook or somebody in their 2018 roundup uh, said a third of all deals in 2018 corporate venture participated. So I think you know, there's, a, there's a general trend and that's probably not fintech specific. That's probably happening across a number of industries, right? So I think that there, that is a general backdrop, but within capital markets in particular, there's these, these opportunities are revealing themselves and we're helping, we think, in that discovery process. Yeah. From a corporate kind of strategic mindset, do you think there are still some reservations regarding taking minority interests in these startups? As do you see that for for some of these, you know, strategic investors, they historically have been acquiring companies more? Is that something where you see a little bit like a change of mindset where they where they now say, "Hey, we can also take a minority interest," or then maybe even wonder why should we take a minority interest if we can just buy that startup? Yeah, I think. The later stage, that's probably true. So, in the late, you know, later stage of the curve, maybe there's been some some strategic strategic whole cloth acquisitions that make sense. The companies that we work with, you know, the alpha tech companies that we work with at Air tend to be early. The average age is four four and a half years old. You know, they're ten to twenty employees. They've done a seed or maybe a Series A. That's not universally true, but that's sort of the profile. So. For, for a large institutional asset manager to participate in a round like that is historically probably not been significantly large enough to get you know, real leadership behind it and you know, real, real management buy-in. I think that's changing. And then there's, a, there's always been sort of a vendor viability risk into these conversations. So you meet, I meet company A, I think they're doing something really interesting. I think it can add value to our process. But me being their only large institutional asset management company is not necessarily going to ensure their survival and bringing them into my into my process bringing them into my technology stack is not insignificant so would i feel more comfortable if there were more firms that look like me engaging with this company either on a commercial basis or on a, on a an investment basis well yes and yes and we're seeing more of that appetite certainly within the air community it's a bit of both right we focus on content Right, because we're 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 bringing in subject matter experts to speak and to educate our community. We're focused on content in the form of these emerging companies, and we're focused on connectivity. Right, we have this really unique um, mix of buy side, sell side, alpha tech. I'll call it vendors, so you know, exchanges, technology companies that are all focused on trying to solve some of these same problems, and they're doing it in a highly collaborative way. And we're able to sort of sit in the nexus of all that and connect all these different nodes. That could be about commercial opportunities. It could be around capital formation. It could be around partnership, whatever it happens to be. We think that's, that's, that's important. And we think the appetite for that is changing. And you see it a lot of the big, uh, certainly the big diversified financial services firms have probably led the way. So people who do have a consumer banking unit, for example, I think about people like Santander or Barclays who have created these kind of innovative centers and accelerators and so on. I think if you're pure asset manager, they're probably behind, but we see the, we certainly see the mindset and the body language opening to it, right? We should be more engaged with companies like this 
whether that's because we want to hire them and bring them in to our process somehow, or we want to actually invest in them or both. And it's not too dissimilar to the market structure example, right? So if, you know, some large trillion dollar asset manager invests in one of these companies on a strategic basis and then announces that it's a customer, right? Well, theoretically, they've added intrinsic value. You know, they've already positive ROI on that investment, right? Because the value of that company's just gone up because Templeton's now a customer, right? Or T. Rowe's now a customer, whoever it is. So we, you know, we think there is, there's, we're seeing an opening to that, to that mindset. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's definitely a very interesting development. Another uh, thing I noticed on at the Air Summit that was really distinct in nearly every uh, presentation of a startup was the use of terms around big data and AI. There was, you know, it's, we know it's kind of catchphrases, but on the other hand, uh, the public markets really run on data and, you know, the buy as well as the sales side um, have been very open to technology like changes and uh, new technology really for the last decades and have always embraced that. So, so in a sense, maybe it isn't even that surprising that there's that much hunger for, for capital markets, but just, Give us a little bit insight into um, what these technologies around uh, data and AI really are doing, kind of what have they done in the past? Uh, what is the outlook? Why are these companies talking about them so much and I guess also um, using them? Right. Well, I think at a minimum to your point, you know, who, who's not talking about those terms, right? And so that, you know, there's a, it's almost table stakes, right? So you have to, you have to be doing something in that space, or at least you have to be saying you're doing something in that space. We think for the most part, the companies that we're working with are doing, you know, they're, there's a, I think sometimes there's a there's a big data becomes synonymous with new data, and you know, there's probably some kind of intersection where that's relatively true. So you use the IBM quote about ninety percent of the world's data created in the last two years. So if you're emerging alpha tech company and you're working with those data sets, then yeah, I think you know you could say you know, we work with big data and we're trying to find signal for asset managers we're trying to f unlock some kind of value in in that set right so i, I don't i don't have a, 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 a theoretical or philosophical issue with that on the artificial intelligence side i think you know so you, you know you dig a layer deeper and so so what form of artificial intelligence are you using and are you applying the right form of artificial artificial intelligence to try to solve the pain point that you're trying to solve for we've seen a lot focused you know in the last 18 months around automation, right? So what part of the investment process can we automate? So companies that are applying, you know, natural language processing, sentiment analysis to earning statements, right? To filings and, and trying to automate that part of a, an analyst's day-to-day -day activity to free up time, right? And make it, make it faster, make it richer, so on. So we're seeing a lot of that type of stuff, automating models and model enrichment, things like that. That, that all makes sense to me. I think that's like the first rung on the ladder as it goes. I do think There's a tendency to assume that artificial intelligence is intelligent and not just sort of replicating a process. Um, so not everybody's artificial intelligence. It's just like students in a classroom, right? They're like, someone's the smartest and there's a whole bunch of people that aren't. So I think people need to keep that in mind. And then one thing I'd, I'd add at the end, there's, this is a consistent theme in conversations with members of the AIR community. We'll be focusing more on it this September is around people and organization and talent right? Like cultural alpha. So are you set up as an organization to actually embrace this and to embrace the types of people you need to either train, recruit, retain, to empower them to actually be successful, 
That was a big theme in our last event in September. So you can hire the, the best data scientists in the world. You can hire the smartest AI guys in the world. But if you're not bought into it culturally and you don't give that person the tools and the environment to succeed, it's not going to work. Um, and so that has everything to do with people and culture and almost nothing to do with technology, right? And so the tools are available and you can hire the, the person who's got the skills to ascertain which are the right tools for your set of problems. But if they're not empowered to, to actually execute on that, it, then what's the point? So I think that's a big one that kind of gets overlooked. And, and like I said, we'll be focusing more on that. We haven't figured out what we're going to call it. <laughs> cultural alpha, I think. Cultural sounds, alpha, organizational alpha, something like people alpha. Yeah, wait, we're not sure yet. Yeah, no, and I think that's a that's a great point and a very fair point that you have to you know build that culture um, around these people to actually yeah make make them you know come to work and and use these technologies as well. Right. I think you know not to you know praise RQ too much, but mm -hmm. I think that's also something we have embraced you know with our open e uh, research ecosystem you know with sharing our research around you know all the technologies we were investing in but then also using ourselves so i think that's uh, very yeah so very i agree important. with you and if you think about think about that amongst uh, you know amidst the backdrop of the challenges that our core constituency has kathy had the foresight but also the opportunity to start with a blank sheet of paper and build it however she wanted to build it right no legacy technology no legacy culture no legacy management no c suite on top of her, right, that said, no, that's not the way we do things. And so when you have that, you can do that. If you're sitting inside a 200-year-old firm, 100-year-old firm, right, that's branded itself a certain way, and, you know, think about the firms we're talking about, right? And think about the just the advertisements you see on TV and stuff. These are, it's about tradition and trust and generations. It's not about new, right? And a lot of times when it is about new, it feels sort of like lip service, right? So to the point about, you know, creating that, you know, you've got to go about it in a very, in a very different, different way. Jordan Vinerup, who's on our, is a T. Rowe Price, who's on our advisory board and runs their Center for Innovation here in New York, spent a lot of time talking about that at our event last year. You know, he, he was empowered by T. Rowe at the most senior levels to go build out this team of technologists to focus on innovation and development. They, they purposely put it in New York. Um, he spoke a lot about how they go about recruiting, how they kitted out the office, like how, you know, how they engage with, with each other, how they recruit, how they retain. Uh, very little about, well, you know, we, we prefer this flavor of AI than that flavor of AI. It was none of that, right? It was almost 90%, I think, about his, his conversation was around the, the cultural aspect and how important it is to get that piece correct. And, you know, again, to your point, like Kathy, Kathy had the luxury, of, she had a vision for what she wanted to do and she was able to do it because- it was a blank. It was a blank whiteboard, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I think that's very important. Also, because you know, I guess the talent that went to do in, went into finance, um, also from a yeah engineering a quant perspective over the last decades, probably today is is uh, going more into the tech startup world. Uh, it's ending up at at Google, and even if we're talking about more finance focused roles, you know, you have news about Uber opening, you know, fintech uh, operations here in New York, you know, high on the, being on a hiring spree, spree in terms of fintech. So you really have a lot of competition around, around this talent that's actually, you know, that at the cutting edge and it's going to, you know, implement these technologies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think and you'll see, you know, you mentioned Google, you'll see, I think you'll see the Googles of the world pushing into the let's just institutional capital markets. Let's stay with that. So you'll see Google push into asset management in ways 
other than cloud, right? So data, analytics, tools. So look, you know, Google, asset managers starting to look at Google the same way they might look at a Bloomberg, a fact set in terms of data sets, right? Or a financial engines or, or you know, whatever it happens to be, like some of the MSCI products or something like that. Like help me build portfolios based on your data sets and your analytical tools. And I'm not sure that there's a lot of in- traditional institutional asset managers who, when they think of uh, vendors that they can tap to help them discover sources of alpha, are necessarily thinking about the Google's little world, right? They're probably thinking, oh, we have a relationship with Google somewhere, and it reports <laughs> into the technology budget, and it's got something to do with cloud. Yeah. Right? Exactly. But not about, hey, maybe that's going to help me pick stocks better, right? Yeah. Or manage risk better or whatever. Yeah. So I think that's it's interesting it's interesting piece. That competition for talent, you know, a lot of the, you hear a lot of the banks certainly talk about it. Like, oh, we're competing for talent against Google and Amazon and so on. And I hear that sometimes. And I'm like, yeah, are you? <laughs> like, I, I think I agree with you that you ought to be, but like, are you really competing? Like, or are you losing that? And then it goes back to culture. So it's one thing to go try to recruit and retain those people and just pay them. It's another thing to create a place where they actually feel like they're solving problems and and you know have support and can work in a, in a, a methodological approach, a philosophical approach to the way they like to solve problems. And I don't know. I think you know it's like everything else. Some some people, some firms are. Some firms are doing it better. Some aren't doing it at all. Some never will. It's just a, and I don't think that's unique to financial services, right? Yeah, but they might have one of the bigger challenges in there. Yeah, I agree. For sure. For, yeah, especially. Yeah. On the asset management side. Yeah. Notwithstanding the really smart, smaller, nimbler, quant, quantum mental hedge funds that were sort of built that way. Sure. Talk about the big traditional, you know, 40 act stock pickers. Talking maybe about other challenges. So so we um, kind of checked off that that, that culture and, and talent challenge. Um, what other challenges do you see in terms of capital for, for capital market startups? I don't know, macroeconomic, regulatory, anything that comes to mind? For the startups, it, these are hard organizations to navigate. You know, you've typically raised, at least the companies we work with, right, have not raised a lot of money. Navigating the organization is difficult. The sales cycle is forever. There's lots of people you need to satisfy. There are all kinds of kind of vendor viability and technology audits and all these things you have to go through that take time. And time is the dearest resource you have when you're kind of a startup and emerging technology company and time equates to money as we all know. So there's, there's a, there's a risk you outlive your money trying to get to an engagement with these large institutions. We've been focused on this concept of a a proof of concept as a service. So in a way to kind of expedite that outside of kind of the walled garden and work on small discrete problems and connect you know, asset managers or even the sell side with these emerging companies to work on a problem as a way to validate things, to get maybe a little bit of revenue in the door. So paid POC and kind of expedite that whole process because that can be really damaging to some of these emerging companies. Like, yeah, we're, you know, talking to XYZ asset management, you know, large, huge fund, and they're really excited about it, but they're dealing with 20 different people and it's now it's 18 months and they're burning cash and they have no revenue to show for it. And so that's a real challenge for the for those emerging technology companies. I think for the industry generally, um, 
you know, particularly on the on the buy side, and it all flows downhill, right? So if the buy side has a problem, then the sell side has a problem because their biggest clients have a problem and they want to be in the business of helping them solve those problems. But yeah, there's so non-differentiated alpha streams, right? So you're trying to charge a premium for a product that's not putting up premium returns. That's a challenge. Fee compression, which is kind of a byproduct of that plus the growth of passive. I actually think that the active versus passive tension conversation is really about high cost and low cost. There's value for performance that people are willing to pay for regardless of the wrapper. So I think you know that we'll see how that plays out. But it's real, right? AUM is flowing to passive. It's flowing to lower fee product. Even within passive, even within ETFs, the flows are into the lowest cost products, right? So that's a dynamic that's real. So if the pendulum swings back, we swing back to a market dynamic where active starts to outperform again and you know it, it, it uh, is even gaining net inflows, I don't know that it goes back to a massive premium priced product like that. That horse is out of the barn. One of the, I think the interesting things about the robos have proven, you can argue, it's probably a whole different podcast as to whether or not they're worth the valuations they've gotten based on the actual financial metrics and the number of accounts and active accounts and funded accounts and all that stuff. What they, I think they validated is that there is a, a large part of the investor demographic that's not just millennials that are looking for low cost access on an omni-channel basis in a simple, intuitive user experience. Do, are, are the large active guys providing that? You know, some are, some aren't. Can that be done? Can you produce, can you execute on your existing process in a traditional 40 act wrapper and deliver that value at 20 basis points? When historically you've done it at 150, 200. I mean, that's a, that's an operating model question, right? There's the return component, but then there's, can you operate your business in a way that you know, Vanguard can or 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 iShares can. So I think that's a I don't know if that's a macro problem. It's a systemic challenge to everybody in the space. And then, so if you're an emerging fintech company trying to service asset managers, where do you see that all going? Some of these guys that we work with have products that don't really work well in a passive indexed world. They might work well in the closeted index world, and they certainly work well in an active world. So you have to, you know, where do you think that all? shakes out. If like if I were starting one of those businesses, that's what I'd seriously be thinking about, right? Who am I going to sell this to? Who's my customer? And are, are there going to be fewer of them in five years, two years? Are they, are they going to be, are they going to figure out how to get through this and reinvent themselves or reshape themselves to some degree? And can I be part of that? Can I help them do that? And that's what like, that's what we look for when we look for companies coming through air. You know, do you have a potential solution that helps this particular part of the problem? And we're not focused on the operating model. We're not focused, like, do you have something that can help the return piece? Because that's a big part of it, right? If you can start performing, outperforming again, that changes the tenor of the conversation. You already anticipated my last question there. <laughs> <laughs> so winding up here a bit, you, you talked a lot about kind of the outlook and, and stuff, but is there anything else you want to add to that? Maybe in terms of capital market startup, what do you expect to see over the next years at AIR, more generally in the industry, you know, at your investment practice and, and advisory practice? I think we'll continue to see it like incumbent enterprises in all parts of the business get more active in the early stage ecosystem. And I think that will take a number of different forms. So that could be investing directly in these companies. It could be incubating these companies externally and internally, 
Um, I think the latter is really interesting and we're seeing more and more people do that. And I think that also speaks to the culture piece. I think if you are able to offer employees, whether it's part of the recruitment or retention and development process, an opportunity to say, hey, you know, here's an opportunity to put your idea you know, into a into a, the hopper and see if we get, you know, we pick it out and go go work for it. You know, walk away from your day job for the next two weeks, two months, whatever it is, and go work on it and see what happens. More and more people are doing that. And I think we'll see, we'll continue to see that for sure. I think we'll see more of the role of innovation officer, you know, strategic innovation, whatever it happens to be specifically within the asset management business. Like I said, I think you've, you've, you've seen it still early days, but you've seen it across the big diversified financial services companies. But I think specifically like the, the one, the guys that are just asset management businesses, I think you'll see more of that. And I think, you know, you're seeing some of it now in sort of like these digital roles, but they tend to focus a little bit more on the user experience and marketing and things like that. I think in terms of actually getting deep into the ecosystem and getting to know these companies, getting to understand the forms of AI that they're using, you know, what do they mean when they say big data? What do we mean when we see big data? Like what's the process and getting their heads around it, they're approaching it kind of the way T. Rowe is approaching it. I think we'll see more of that. And then, yeah. And then there's always the, all the typical regulatory and central government and, you know, markets type unpredictability. You know, that's always, that's never going away, right? So who knows, you know, who knows where we end up with all those things, catalysts or, you know, they slow things down. I think that the entire space has to continue to evolve because the current, the old models don't, aren't working. Thank you so much, Morgan. It was great to, to learn about the capital market space within fintech. I think it's overlooked for many, but it's a very interesting space. And we're looking forward to having you back. Thanks great. so much. Thanks. I appreciate it. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating on iTunes. You can find the full ARC team on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.